I'd love to read to you from Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, a very well-known passage. And if you uh, have your Bibles with you, do please turn with me uh, to the passage. We're going to read from verse 11 down to the end of verse 31. And it's the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they be began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And we do pray that the Holy Spirit would bless us and give us an understanding of that wonderful and very familiar passage of Scripture. Now, I don't know about you, uh, do, do you like to read a newspaper? I like to read a newspaper just about every day. And I've discovered that since I've got an iPad, I can read it online, uh, which is just great because it means I don't have to pay for it. Uh, and I, I have to confess, I tend to, to speed read. I, I rip through quite quickly, stopping only when there's a headline that captures my interest. Now, 
I have to tell you that I try to make sure I don't read my Bible like that. Because when we read our Bibles, it's really important to go slowly, to observe the text, to drink in the details, because the jewels, the gems, the treasures are wedged between the lines. And if we go quickly, we, we miss them. So I like to, to linger a little bit. And a little while ago, I was reading through the book of Job. Now, I have to tell you that Job is not my favorite book in the Bible because it's all about suffering. But I came across something that I thought was really interesting, and I want to share it with you. In Job chapter 29, Job is looking back to what he calls his good old days. Now, when you're a little bit older like me, you tend to look back to the good old days. Now, somebody has said or defined the good old days as a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. And when we think back to the good old days, but you know, Job, his good old days really were good. We, in chapter 29, he's in the middle of his struggles and his difficulties, and he's looking back. And he says in verses 2 and 3, How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me. Now, why does he say that? He says that because he doesn't feel as though God's watching over him today. Maybe you're feeling a bit like that. Job goes on and he says, when his lamp shone on my head and by his light I walked through darkness. But he's looking back longing for that because he doesn't seem to have any sense of God's light showing him the way at this particular time. So his, his heart is aching. But you know, the best thing about the good old days for Job, he refers to in the next verse. He says, oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. Isn't that a beautiful verse? And here we have this lovely expression, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. Now, as I read that, I began to think, well, that's wonderful. But surely his experience becomes our possibility. His experience becomes our possibility. Friendship with God. Now, I have a twin brother. And uh, if you met him, you would think that you're, you're probably speaking to me. If you saw us side by side, I'm sure you'd know the difference. But my twin brother, a number of years ago, one of the guys from the Finley Church was over in Dublin for a weekend. My brother's a craft potter. I may have told you this story before, I can't remember. But he was, my brother was in a, in a window of a, a, a big craft shop in Dublin arranging a display of some of his pots. And I was in my study on a Saturday morning getting ready for Sunday and the phone rang and it was my friend Graham. And Graham said, Michael, where are you? I said, well, Graham, I'm on the end of the phone here, but where are you? I said, I'm in my study. And he said, well, I'm in Dublin and I'm looking in a shop window and I can see you arranging some pots. Graham knows me, but he doesn't know my brother. He knows what he looks like, but he doesn't know him. Now, look what uh, again, at what uh, Job says. He says, oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. Now, that's the only 
place in scripture that that word intimate appears when God's intimate friendship bless my house. And I thought that was wonderful because that's, that was his experience. But surely that can be our experience as well. What, what is God's heart? What's God's heart? Does, does, God, does God want us to have that experience of an intimate friendship with him, which will bless our house? Well, I think so. I believe so. I believe that that's the experience that God wants us to have because I believe that's his heart. Now, we read together uh, a, a, an interesting a parable which tells us a great deal about God's heart. Well, let's think first of all about the background to the parable. Well, you will probably have heard the schoolboy definition of what a parable is. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. You've, you've, I'm sure we'll all have heard that. Well, why did Jesus use parables when he was teaching? Yes, we know they're nice stories, but why did he use them? Well, we read in Matthew's gospel that Jesus had a real purpose in using parables. He says in verse 12 and 13, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken, taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. So why did Jesus use parables? Well, he used parables so that those who thought that they could see might be blinded, and those who were aware that they were blind, that they might see. That's why Jesus used parables. And in Luke chapter 15, the chapter we read from, there are <coughs> three parables recorded. And actually, if you put them together, they're kind of three parts of one larger parable. A single message about lost things being found. And yet, each episode tells, in context, uh, of an increased complexity and a heightened tension. Let me explain that. The first parable describes a shepherd who has lost one of his sheep. Now, sheep were and are, I guess, valuable to the shepherd. But, but he had a hundred sheep and he lost just one of them. So if my maths is correct, that was just one percent. Okay, so he just lost one sheep. But, but then the next parable goes on to describe who, a woman who has lost a silver coin. And that silver coin's valuable to her. Perhaps it was uh, part of her dowry. Maybe she was saving it up for a rainy day. And how many coins did she have? She had 10. So she lost one coin. So she actually lost 10%. And that was a whole lot higher in terms of percentage loss than the shepherd. But the third parable, however, is more poignant. The father has two sons, and he loses one of them. He's lost 50% of his sons. Not a sheep, not a coin. It's really an unbearable loss. We know that the tax collectors and the sinners were drawn to Jesus. Maybe some of them had witnessed some of the miracles that he's he performed and they just wanted to 
to get alongside and, uh, and to hang out with them. But the Pharisees and teachers, they weren't there out of curiosity. They were there to criticize Jesus because they didn't like the way he behaved. He didn't behave in the way they thought he ought to behave. In Luke 15 verse 2, they criticize him. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And they thought that was inappropriate, that Jesus wasn't behaving the way they thought he should behave. So in this passage, we find a trio of figures. We find tax collectors and sinners. We find uh, uh, Pharisees and, and teachers. But then we also find Jesus. And in order to grasp the big picture of what's going on, we need to look at this parable through the eyes of the younger son and then through the eyes of his older brother and then through the eyes of the father in the parable. And please understand that the father in the parable represents Jesus himself. Now, the kind of question we're asking is, does God want to have an intimate friendship with us? That's a great question, isn't it? And we're going to see, I think, the answer as we look at this parable. So let's look at it, first of all, through the eyes of the younger son. Well, the younger son just wants to get away from home. He's looking for something, but he's not sure what it is. Verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, the folks who are listening to Jesus tell this story would have been absolutely shocked. You see, in effect, this young man was saying to his father, I don't want to wait till you're dead. I want what's coming to me, and I want it now. And that was incredibly disrespectful and painful. Now, think about it. The father in the parable was likely a substantial landowner. And if he was going to divide his estate between his two sons, then he'd have to sell the land. And if he was selling the land, he'd probably have to sell it at short notice in order to meet his younger son's demand. So the father stands to take a big loss because surely other uh, landowners would see this as a prime opportunity to increase their land holding at a discounted price. And more than that, if, they, if the man sells the major portion of his land, that land is gone forever. If he, if he gives it away, the prospect of getting it back remains very small indeed. So the, the younger son actually impoverishes his father. And the hearers <coughs> drawn into the story knew that the younger son's demand was not only offensive, it was destructive. Such a son could only destroy himself and perhaps eventually destroy his father also. Such a son should be rejected forever. Indeed, a rebellious son like that was viewed as forfeiting a right to life. Well, we, we know what happened, don't we? He 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. He, he wasted the lot, and he ended up looking after pigs. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anything to do with pigs. Uh, I, I, I used to pastor a church in England in the middle of the countryside, and most of the congregation were farmers, and, and they grew barley or wheat, and they had pigs. And I can remember one day being asked by one of the farmers, come and have a look at my pigs. So I had to go into the piggery and I, 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 I didn't touch anything, but you know, I came out and I stank of pigs. I stank till I had to go and have a shower and I had to wash my hair and my wife had to wash all my clothes because pigs, they stink sometimes when they're, they're penned up. Well, here was this man and he was looking after pigs and he was really, really hungry. He was so hungry, it says in verse 16, that he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave, gave to him. Now, when I was growing up, we had a few acres, and we used to rent it out, and the local farmer was a lovely man called George, and he used to keep cattle and sheep on the land, and, and he used to come around, and he used to collect all the stuff that we threw away from the kitchen, like the, 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 the leftovers, the, 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 the potato peelings and all of that, and he would take it up to his house, which was a, across the main road from our house, because he had pigs there. And he would put all this, what we call the slops, into a 40-gallon drum, and he'd light a fire under it, so he'd cook it all up for the pigs. And you know, when he was doing that, the whole neighborhood could smell it, because the smell just went everywhere. It, was, it wasn't very nice. Well, here was this man looking after pigs, and he was so hungry that he wanted to eat the pig food. But nobody gave him any. Oh, dear, how terrible that was for him. How tragic. And then there came a turning point in verse 17 when he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. The younger brother begins to see himself and his situation in a new light. He remembers his father and how far he has drifted and how far down he's fallen. How arrogant he has been, how self-absorbed, and now he is spent. He threw himself confidently into finding satisfaction, but he's actually become the personification of a dissatisfied man. How very sad that was. I once used to work for a man who um, lived his life in pursuit of satisfaction. And uh, the, I, I seem to remember at one time he was into hang gliding. And hang gliding was the big thing. He couldn't wait to finish work and go off hang gliding. But, but then he got tired of hang gliding and he started sailboarding. And he couldn't wait to finish work to go sailboarding. And he would talk about the weekends that he spent sailboarding. And then that began to pale and become just not so pleasurable. So he changed and he began to go skiing. And he would talk about the skiing trips and all the fun he was having skiing. But that satisfaction didn't last for very long. It, it, it didn't because... In the words of Blaise Pascal, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator 
made known through Jesus. There's a God-shaped space in all of our hearts. And it's only when Jesus is in there that he can fill that space. So this young man sets out and he heads for home and he begins to go over in his mind the kind of things that he's going to say to his father. And you can just imagine him repeating the conversations as he imagines it. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So that's what he's going to say to his father. And well, we know what happens when he when he gets home. Um, he, he meets his, his, his father uh, and he says to his father, uh, well, we, we know while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And I have to confess, I wonder, uh, uh, when he got close to his son, he must have smelt the pigs long before he could touch him because the aroma of pigs kind of lingers. And his father would have been aware of, of, of the fact that his son had been uh, with the pigs. And, and then the, the young man began to speak, perhaps through floods of tears, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he never got to say, make me like one of your servants. He never got that far because his father interrupted him with words of forgiveness. His father said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You see, in those moments, the younger son discovered what grace is all about. Justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. But grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And this younger son, he got forgiveness, didn't deserve it but he got it. So he discovered grace. So that's looking at this story through the eyes of the younger son. But let's look at it now through the eyes of the older brother. Now we remember that Jesus was addressing uh, this parable to the Pharisees and teachers of the law who criticized him. And I think that the older brother actually represents that. You see, Jesus vividly portrays the spirit of these men in the elder brother. When he heard the sound of celebration, he comes in from the field, he grits his teeth and he demands to know what's happening. He learns the news, but he refuses to go in and to have any part in the celebration. He didn't want to know. Now, grace, you would think, would make him happy, but it actually makes the elder brother miserable. He seems incapable of either receiving grace or rejoicing in grace. And what irritates the older brother about this grace is precisely that it is grace, that the younger brother is getting what he doesn't deserve. You see, in his eyes, the younger brother doesn't deserve what he's receiving. Has his father no sense of justice? And the tragedy is, is that the older brother has never enjoyed a relationship of grace with his father. That's an absolute tragedy. He's never left home 
But you know, he's never actually really been at home, has he? There's anger in his heart. Look at what he says. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now look what he says. He says, this son of yours. He doesn't say my brother. No, it's this son of yours. You see, he sees himself as being superior. And not only superior to his brother, but superior to his father. And then he rubs his brother's sins in his father's face. Squandered your property with prostitutes. You know, this is often the characteristic of many religious people who do not taste the grace of God and who've never experienced or enjoyed forgiveness of sin. Why should they desire what they think they do not need? After all, in their own eyes, their track record is surely acceptable to God because they're better than most people. They're not perfect, of course, but what can be expected? And anyway, if grace is needed, it's, it's due to them. And what they love to do is stress the faults of others to emphasize the point. They speak the language of the elder brother. This son of yours. This, he just resented his father's grace to his brother. Now remember, justice is what we, what we get when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. But grace is when God gives us what we could never deserve. There is a petulance here. And notice the father's grace to him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There was no joy. There was only judgment, resentment. There are religious folks who neither see nor feel any need of forgiveness. I hope that doesn't describe you today. And then we have the father in the parable, Jesus picturing himself as the shepherd who rescues lost sheep, sheep who get themselves into a bit of bother and who've no way of of getting out of that bother. Jesus is the shepherd who comes to rescue the sheep. He's like the woman who looks for the lost coin until she finds it. He's like the father who welcomes the prodigal son. And what does this all tell us about Jesus? Well, do you know there's something scandalous about the freedom of the father's grace? He runs to meet his son and pours on him forgiveness and assurance. He throws his arms around the prodigal and kisses him, despite the fact that he probably stinks of pigs. Imagine that. Throws his arms around that smelly, dirty 
man and kisses him. He bestows on him marks of his love. Bring the best robe. We wonder, has he been keeping the best robe in hope that, against hope that someday his son would return? Put a ring on his hand. In the ancient Near East, this was a mark of authority, sometimes even of royalty. Put sandals on his feet. Now, slaves didn't wear sandals, nor did guests. Only family members wore sandals. And these are all indications that the father has no intention of receiving his lost son as a hired hand. He will have him in the family because he forgives him, because he loves him, because he wants that intimate relationship between father and son to, to be restored, because he loves him. He welcomes him, not to servitude, but to sonship. And then he says, kill the fattened calf, he shouts with joy. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine who demanded life and found only death is alive again. He was in the far country, but now he's home. The younger son expected some form of punishment, uh, maybe having to uh, endure the cold shoulder to go and live on a, in an outhouse and, uh, and to, you know, spend a year looking after the livestock. But no, the father isn't like that at all. He accepts him and he brings him home with a celebration. You see, there's always joy in forgiveness and acceptance and embrace despite the stench of pigs and the stench of your sin and mine. Because this is what God has done for us, isn't it? Has he not come alongside us and reached out to us and drawn us to himself and whispered into our hearts, I love you. I'm never going to let you go. There's nothing in all creation that's ever going to separate you from my love. Isn't that what he said to us? Even during in the midst of this pandemic, I've got you, I've got a hold of you, and I'm never going to let you go. And maybe he's been saying to you, to someone for a very long time, I love you, but you've never responded to him. I wonder, will he respond today? Because this is a beautiful picture of Father's heart. This is the kind of relationship that he wants with us. An intimate love relationship. There's something else in this parable that I just want to finish with because I think it's really beautiful. You see, this is sometimes called the parable of the two sons. But actually, there are three sons in this parable. There's the younger brother. There's the older brother. That's two. But the third son is the one who's telling the story. Isn't that right? Because he's the one who was at home with his father in heaven, but who came to a far country this world. And he came on a rescue mission. Why? To do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Psalm 49 says that all the money in the world won't buy forgiveness for one sinner or one sin. But Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He pro provides a way for us to be welcomed home into heaven. Isn't that wonderful? So let me just ask you this. Why, if Jesus has done all of that for us, 
would he want to keep us at arm's length? Well, of course he doesn't. He wants us to celebrate. So I go right back to where we started. Oh, for the days, Job says, when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. And I guess my prayer for you today is the same as my prayer for myself. Lord, I want to experience not just a nodding acquaintance with you, not just a friendship with you. I want to know an intimate friendship with you. Because that will bless my house. And when I am blessed and my house is blessed, then other people are blessed too. So that's my prayer for you. That you might know God's intimate friendship. Blessing your house today. And if we're talking about something that you've never experienced, well, maybe, just maybe, we should pause together and pray, asking that the Lord, in his loving mercy, would reach out and touch each of our hearts with grace. Remember, justice is what we get, when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. But grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we've been able to look at this passage of scripture and that we've been able to uh, catch a glimpse of your heart. Oh, running to the sinner, running to the smelly, dirty man. And isn't that what you do for us, Lord? Oh, how wonderful it is to be able to look back and to be able to remember a, a, a moment when we came to you and you saved us. Some folks are able to point to a particular time. Other folks aren't. But what really matters is that we know where we are today. But maybe there's somebody listening and you've never met Jesus. Oh, you know about him. But you've never met him in that intimate, personal way. And our prayer is that this morning, as we have looked at your word together, that your Holy Spirit will help us, that we might reach out to you. Because we know that when we take a step towards you, you come running to us. Such is the love that you have for us. So do bless all these, my friends, and whoever's listening to this in the coming day. Please, Lord. For the glory of your great name we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.